library. Well, as David mentioned, and as you probably saw a theme in the scripture readings, uh, although the psalm has never gotten updated, nobody's called me on this. I wonder, like, hang on, for some reason I update the psalm in one thing every week, and it doesn't update in other things. So we've had Psalm 146 for three weeks in a row. Uh, and it is a great and joyous psalm that causes it to the Easter good news. As we talked about last week, um, Easter season goes on all the way to Pentecost. And so it's this time in which we celebrate the resurrection, which is true and good and deep and wide for us. And so that's sort of what's going on in this season. And so the psalm uh, was supposed to be Psalm 68, which contains a line about God being the father to the littlest and the defenseless. But each one of these themes and these some of the psalms we sang all sort of related to this father theme. Now, for those of you who weren't here last Sunday, um, we're going to be walking through the creed of the church, or the Apostles' Creed, um, for the next couple of weeks, all the way up into Pentecost. And the Apostles' Creed begins with, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. And what we're going to do is spend one, two weeks, two Sundays each on each petition of the creed, sort of in its larger period. So you have, I believe in God, Father, Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And that goes on to give sort of a biography of who Jesus is. And then I believe in the Holy Spirit, which uh, we'll get to on Pentecost, which is like ultimate God's timing for me in some ways. It's like, hey, that's, it worked out. Um, and then we'll talk about the Trinity at the end of it, which is sort of undergirding each one of these petitions. But if you weren't here last week, I sort of, tried to give a minor defense as I could for, for why we would consider the creed as a way of, of speaking and preaching and exploring the church. And it's often that at the end or like towards the end of a sermon series, it becomes clear to me that like that's what I was trying to say the whole time, um, which is not, <laughs> not the best. Uh, you, you, you're, I'm stabbing at it, I'm stabbing at it, I'm trying to figure out, and then week five or six, I'm like, oh, suddenly become clear what I've been trying to say the whole time. Um, and yet this time I was thinking about this today, is, is the way I prefer to think about the creed as we go forward is that if, if you're familiar with the internet, which I'm sure many of us are, um, you click on something and it's called sort of like a hyperlink. So if you're reading an article and it says there's some other article that talks about something that we're talking about, uh, you can click on that and it takes you to something else, right? That's called a hyperlink. And my, my argument sort of would be, is that the, the Apostles' Creed for us can serve as a hyperlink in its short version. It says, I believe in God the Father. My hope is that in the sermons and in our study and our care, that you sort of click on it and you find that it's a much more expansive term. It goes to so much more. Um, so if you've ever done what, what is classically called an internet deep dive, where you click on one thing, hey, what's going on with this? And you end up with 40 tabs open, your computer's starting to slow down, it's about to die. And it's all because you clicked on one thing and everything else became open to you. And you're like, I have to get on with my life. Um, uh, and then so your computer dies and you're saved through that, that moment. Um, that's sort of what I think happens with, with the Apostles' Creed for us, is it can become this thing which we can click on and, and sort of see like as a diamond or something through multiple different angles and lenses what it's trying to say to us. And so with fatherhood, you have this notion in the Old Testament, which you'll see several times that pops up, this notion of Israel as God, uh, relating to God as Father. And then in the New Testament, it becomes clear on Jesus' lips that this is the, the way that revelation flows, that we're, we're to call God Father. 
And one of the things that, that I want to do today in my sermon is sometimes sermons are arguments. Um, normally I'm arguing with myself, but, but normally I'm, I'm, I'm arguing, I should say, with the, the communion of saints when I'm doing it right. Because if there are other people and other Christians who have said things that, that I either agree with or disagree with, and it's a point of contention, or it's a point of trial. Now, did, it's not a good thing to ask people to raise hands if they grew up with a good father, so I'm not going to do that. Um, when we think about fatherhood, um, uh, that's like a, and some of you are with your parents, which would bring even more struggle here. How was your dad? I know that she raised my hand. He's looking right now. Totally fair. Uh, my son's at least in the nursery and is not aware of anything I'm saying. Um, my daughter's also in there. Um, but what is, is this notion of fatherhood? And, and Mary Daly, who's, who sort of coined this, this classic sort of feminist phrase, I think in the 80s, said that if God is male, then male is God. And what Mary Daly was trying to say and what she articulated is, is that the, the church, and she's a Catholic, many of the, the people who take sort of this position that fatherhood is maybe perhaps not the best language for God. What she's trying to coin here is that if God is a man, we call God man by father. And in the Catholic Church, we only have, you only have male priests because they're the most clear inheritors of what Jesus has done. Then the male becomes God, and the female fades into the background as a dysfunctional sort of God. And so she brings up this point, and she's not the originator, but kind of starts there, is that perhaps male language for God is self-destructive to the task of the church. It doesn't make good things. Now, Protestant evangelicals, Protestants, have looked at this phrase, and, and they've sort of come and said, you know, fatherhood language doesn't represent everybody who's had a good father. So we just saying, you're a good, good father. But what about people who had bad fathers, right? What about people whom fatherhood is not, um, to use a modern word, it's, it's a trigger. It, it, it brings up negative emotions of what God could and can be. Right? And so this is something that exists in the wider church. You might be familiar with it yourself. You might be sympathetic to yourself. Now, today I messed up the songs a little bit, um, but that was mainly on me and trying to balance my son and other things. But oftentimes we have different rival things sort of going on in the songs and that our contemporary hymnal, which is in the back, tends to switch to gender neutral language for God. So all creatures of our God and King, they sing, oh, singing. Um, we sing the older oh praise him. But you can see how this slips into different spheres and different things, is that it becomes clear that, and, and then there's a second level of this, which is what language do we use for humanity in the Bible? For instance, there are instances in the, the New Testament where Paul uses a language that means male or maybe even means sons, but as long as we're translating it for the modern world, we should probably say children of God or people of God. We should, we should maybe shift it to a more inclusive term. But this is something that, and this is the hard part about making this argument today, this is something that's going on a lot in the modern world today, um, and it's something, because of my profession, uh, I'm hyper aware of, um, but it's something that I think is worth struggling with. It's something, if you're gonna take the alternative tact, you should take, first off, in any argument, the other person's argument seriously, which is probably the problem with American discourse today. Is, is that you should at least take the other person's argument seriously to some degree. And not only that, you should reach for the better form of the argument if they're uh, not a sufficient argument. So like if it's your, and just to throw out something in general, if it's your grandma on Facebook arguing something and her logic is very flawed, 
and you think if you just point that out, you solved it. You should at least grapple with her idea in its more mature form if you can find it. Don't always go for the lowest hanging fruit with an argument, per se. And so Mary Daly is one of these people who has sort of has sort of proclaimed this and made it true for the church, and it's something I think we're struggling with. And so today, in this first half of I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, we're going to just stick with I believe in God the Father. We're going to talk about what it means to say I believe that God is Father. Now the first thing I want to say in my argument is that this is the, um, uh, well we all know what this is. <laughs> I'm like, how much do I explain? How much is this? And, and to say that this is a sign for the woman's restroom and that God is, is not a woman. Um, the second thing is that this is the sign for the men's restroom. And this is not God either. That's the first important thing to get out there, is that God as spirit transcends male and female. To put the categories of male and female onto God is project our own bodily notion onto it. Now, the people who came up with, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, struggled with this language dearly because pagan gods, the gods of the time, were often projections of human humanity up. And so if you were to take like the most mature pagan thought on this, you would say God is like you, except times a thousand. A thousand times better, a thousand times kinder, a thousand times... Um, more masculine female. This is where you get gods that fertility gods that have many more parts to themselves than we have for us for fertility. Let's skip that one. Um, uh, that they multiply from humanity up by a thousand, by a million. That their best idea of who God is is something like so multiplied and so it's just a greater version of the greatest person you could think of. What Christians believe when they say, I believe in God the Father, is they don't say, I think of the best dad and, and multiply it by a million. What they're actually saying is that God relates in, in sort of analogy or analogously to us in humanity as a father. Which isn't the same thing as saying this is something much, much greater times a billion. But it's saying that if there's a relationship here that's worth naming, it's worth naming one as father. And so the argument in its shortest form today, if you're ready to check out, um, that the, the argument is this, is that it's simply that God is father. But God is not male. God is not female. But for some reason, God has chosen to reveal himself to humanity most clearly as father. Now, uh, 10 years ago, um, what if, if somebody called me father, what would be the mistake they were making? Yes, I was a uh, big mistake. Um, so, already in the first line of the creed, I believe in God the Father, there's a looking forward to something. Does that make sense? There is no, I believe in God the Father, because you, wouldn't, you couldn't just stop there. Right? There has to be, in some sense, something related to that. So the first line of the creed, and this is interesting, it's, it's before we get to God as the creator of all things, I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, the creator of, of everything, is that before we even name God as creator, which is most clearly in the modern Christian world, the first place we want to sort of go to understand God, creator. I don't understand how everybody could look at all these mountains and all these things and not believe in God. And what I think what we have there is in some sense a category here. Because the one thing to believe in God 
does not mean you believe in the Christian God most clearly revealed to us in the Father. As we talked about last week, there are two creeds of the larger sort of Abrahamic faiths. I believe in one God and Muhammad is his prophet. And hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, the, the Judaic creed. Both those creeds name something about God. Hindus believe in millions of gods. Uh, 100,000 plus gods. I mean, I think it gets up to a million if you really get into it. But to believe in God is not the way that this Christian thing works necessarily. It's to be able to confess that I believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, is what makes the difference for Christianity. And so to say and stand out in the field, and I was on a, a mission trip with somebody who, who sort of did this, and he said to the, trying to evangelize the stoners is not always the best thing, but he said to these stoners, you know, how could you look at all this and say that God doesn't exist? And I cringed because it was like, we're not supposed to say that God doesn't exist, but that God is the God who's taken up residency in Jesus Christ and revealed himself to Israel and to the prophets, that our God is this particular thing, not this universal thing. We end up in sort of this, and last week we talked about the rival creed of our age, moralistic therapeutic theism, this notion that, that God is just this vague thing. And I think sometimes, perhaps, is Christians to blame for that. Because what we want to say to the world is, I believe in God, the creator of everything and everyone. And we never say, I believe in God, the Father. And draw out the ways in which that's a relational statement for us. That it, that it pushes into who Jesus is for us. That the Father sort of looks through to the Son. Now one of the things that, that I would make in this argument is, this was what Kelly read for this. For this reason I kneel before the Father in Greek potter, Pater, uh, from whom every family, Patria, in heaven and on earth derives its name. And so these words, if you were to translate it more literally, it would say, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. This is one of those places where I think the translators made a wide choice, not going literally and translating it to fatherhood. Because what they clearly need is family. But what I think that we find here is that if the fatherhood of, of, of what we name in God points to Jesus, this relationship to his son, and we magnify that up to say that this is something that's existed in the core of the universe before time, before for all time in our understanding of God, that what exists for God is this relational space. And the language that's been revealed to us through Jesus Christ for that relational space is the language of father and son. And the challenge with that, I think, is that it's gone on for all time, or even beyond time, if, if you want to use that frame. If you say for all time, people say, they get lost in thinking about time. But, but for the fullness of time, God has related in this father-son-spirit way. And that's been revealed to us through Jesus Christ. So what this means is that fatherhood, and it's, it, I think it's helpful that we don't use the language. My kids never will most likely call me father, um, unless I teach them that's the proper way to get something. Hey, uh, I need father. Can I borrow the credit card? Um, it's like, we have no money. What are you doing? Um, uh, is the father is, is this way in which revelation works itself down, not up. And so the mistake, and this is a mistake the church has made on the other side of this, and this is where I think Mary Daly has a point, is what they said is, is son, father, priest as the picture of the son, called father, 
up to the fatherhood of God. And so what they did, and the church has made this mistake in its unwise moments, I don't think it's eternally made this mistake, is they've said, what happens when we call God Father is we just multiply up from good human fathers. What this portion of Ephesians says to us is actually, fatherhood's origin, its, its beginning, is in this relationship between these eternal divine beings revealed to us as father and son, co-equal in the same substance, and we'll get into that more when we get into the Jesus part of the creed, that they, they have this relation, and yet that is the relation which originates before we even have a understanding of human fatherhood. And so for, for Mary Daly, I mean, or for more the evangelicals are like, some people don't have a good image of their father, so it's not a good thing. If I had, I think, a reasonably good father, to say that I want God to be like that is not particularly good news to me either. It's not something that I would cherish and be excited about. If you said, yeah, but like your dad, but a thousand times better, you'd say, okay, maybe closer, but would that magnify the false a thousand times higher too, which is maybe not what you want either. And so we look at this in the pagan gods, and, and they have uncontrollable urges and impulses. Um, they contain both feminine and, and male in themselves, and they are multiplied thousands up. And normally what's also modified uh, multiplied thousands up by them is anger and rage as well if you read these things but that's what's also brought up in them they have more power more lust more destructive behavior than say ours does and yet and what christians believe about this god is that he is without slow to anger he's compassionate he defends the poor he did he does these things in the ways in which they're described is it's not just like every father multiplied up over and over again. It's a different kind of fatherhood that's origin in human. And so that that when we say that God is father, we're not simply just thinking of in simple human terms. Now this is a quote from the third century, second century theologian Athanasius. Um, he's arguing with people who want to say, uh, look, humanity is not that great. Um, which is the, the fastest growing heresy that part of this creed is written to is that humanity is not that great is their core belief. That Jesus can't even really be human. That we are just sort of these uh, sweaty, gross things and that's part of our humanity. And why would Jesus take that on? This is what they believe. And so they don't want to call God Father. They want to call him unoriginate. They want to use this term that's completely sort of bland and doesn't really point to anything. But this is, this is Athanasius writing to, to these people who believe this, which we would call Marcionites. Therefore, it is more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works and call him un unoriginate. For the latter title does nothing more than signify all the works individually and collectively, which come to be at the will of God through the word. But the Father has this significance in its bearing only from the Son. What Athanasius is sort of arguing here is that in this moment, in this time, is that to call God just this vague deity, and, and the German word we use for God, uh, God uh, kind of fits this, is, is for Christians, the language we use for God is more clearly the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit than it is to say just God. But to call God this vague, gender-neutral term, and that's maybe the way that we could think about it today, is to miss what it means for Jesus to pray in the passage that David read to us, 
our Father who art in heaven. And then his command to his disciples to do likewise. One of the challenges I think of this is while God is often in the Old Testament and in some portions of the New equated to, to feminine and motherly characteristics, it's always as metaphor. God is like a mother hen. God is like a mother nursing. God is like, these are images that come and arise from scripture, but they're almost always used metaphorically. The challenge of Jesus and the challenge of the church is that this language for father is never used metaphorically. Pray our father who art in heaven, our father who is in heaven. It names a direct relationship. It doesn't just name um, some vague thing, but it names something real. It's not meant to be a metaphor. It's supposed to speak of something deeper. And so that's part of the challenge of, of sort of using fatherhood language for God is that it's, it's, it's something that remains on the lips of Jesus himself as he's revealed as the Son. One of the things that I think is important to, to think about this is that the Christian God, the Jewish God and the Christian God, are always revealed in the particular over the universal. It becomes in the particular. And so to say that why does Jesus use this language to God to ask this is to say, to ask another question on top of that would be, is why does God call Abraham from out among all the nations? I mean, surely it's an offense. My heritage is Scottish. Um, you can buy, it's in my office actually, you can buy like a family name thing that says this is where your family name comes from. Unfortunately, mine says, like, lowland sheep stealer. It's not worth much. That's why they came to America. So maybe not, I don't come from noble line that maybe God would have chosen. But why wouldn't God choose the line that Aristotle is in, or Plato? Why wouldn't God choose Norwegians? Why did God choose Abraham? Why does God reveal his name to Moses as Yahweh, this particular name, this name that's different and called out? Why does God perform particular acts recorded for us as rescuing people from Egypt? Why is God always sort of meshing himself in the particular rather than the universal? And so it should come no surprise to us that when we get to Jesus, God again decides to, to reveal himself not in the universal of all things, but in the particular of all things so that he can be revealed to all. But Christianity and, and Judaism and their wisdom, I think, resist the urge to have universal solutions to these problems. If you want to look back to one of God's universal solutions to the problems of humanity, you have to go back before the call of Abraham generally. And what we find is the flood narrative. That when God deals with humanity as sort of a mass of people, it builds up into this sort of, let's flood it all, because they're so evil. But what happens when God calls Abraham is he begins to deal with people in the particular. He says that through this smaller thing, I'm going to pull out deeper life. I'm going to become a father to them as they are a son, is what it will say in, in the Torah. Is that this fatherhood language begins to appear as God, and it becomes more clearly in the New Testament. But what happens is, is that God dealing in the particular has a path and a way for humanity. And so part of what we struggle with when we when we move into this, is that this is the particular name for God revealed to us through Jesus Christ. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives this commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus calls out this name as the name that goes forward in mission. And I think it would be bad for us to abandon that. I think it's bad for us to project maleness onto God as much as that, too. And I think Mary Daly and others like her point out a point worth considering. Is God for us just a male multiplied up? Or is God the one who's revealed his Father and his relationship to Jesus Christ? And then through that, we become heirs. We become more than conquerors. We become adopted into the family. What this relationship says is that, is that as we become part of who Jesus is, what, when we pray our Father who are in heaven as we do every Sunday here, we move into the spot of Christ. What does God hear your prayers like? In the New Testament, he hears them, God hears them, uh, the Father hears them, as if they are prayers from the Son. As if you move into the spot of Jesus. And so we start with this relational space for who God is. And so to end, I just want to end with this final sort of thought. This is from an essay with, with Robert Jensen, um, who's a theologian whose phrase I use during the Torah series often, uh, the sentence that, uh, who is God? God is whoever rescued Israel out of Egypt and raised Jesus from the dead. That's the phrase I use often, and I like it as a phrase because it connects us to God who's raised once Israel out of Egypt, also raises humanity and raising Christ from the dead. That's not the phrase for today. The phrase is in this essay that I've shared a couple times, um, and, and at this moment in the essay, he's saying that there are slogans. We live in a moment in the church where we use slogans. And there might have been a time in church history where slogans, short, uh, Jesus died to save sinners, Jesus, um, uh, are you born again? Which, has, has anybody ever asked you if you're born again? Mm-hmm. I, I always, are you one of those born again Christians? And I was like, look, the, the way I read the, the Gospel of John is that any Christian, by, by definition, is born again. <laughs> Uh, there's not much I could, if you're, if you're not born again, the, then the question falls flat. I don't know where that question came from, because to be Christian is to be born again. But but uh, he says that we use these slogans, and it shortcuts our Christianity. Um, and we should, fit, we should resist using slogans today. We should use more information, more, more name, move things out of the slogan territory. And, and this is part of, like, if I went to preaching class, and we've talked about this before, the preaching rocket, they would tell me every sermon is incomplete if it doesn't have a slogan. Um, you need a slogan that people can tweet out. Um, and so when people ask me, are you a good preacher? I say, bad preacher, but by conviction. Um, <laughs> I refuse to do some of those things because I think you're smarter than that. Um, you don't need slogan-sized bits. And if there was a slogan-sized bit for today's sermon, it's that God is revealed as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which I stole um, but here's, here's uh, Jensen talking about slogans and the one slogan that we might hang on to, which is not the right slide. There is one slogan-like phrase that is precisely a maximally compressed version of this one God's particular story. This is the revealed name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is just no accident at all that in our postmodern situation, the struggle between realistic faith and religious bull gathering settles into a struggle over this name. Trying names evoke God as three actors of his one story, and this places the three in their actual narrative relation. Substitutes do not and cannot do this. 
creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, for example, neither narrates, neither tells us anything about this God, nor specifically names. For creating, redeeming, and sanctifying are timelessly actual aspects of the biblical God's activity. And more, however, things that any other God, all punitive God, somehow do. In our postmodern situation, when we easily recognize congregations and agencies that know what the, the world they inhabit by uh, we will easily recognize congregations and agencies that know what world they inhabit by their love and fidelity to the triune name. And we will recognize the antiquated Protestantism, which is us, by its uneasiness with the triune name. What today's argument was is, is sort of about how do we reclaim the triune name for us? How do we move the uneasiness for us? Because what it does in Jensen's phrase here is it narrates the story of what God has done with humanity. It tells us of the particular relation and aspects of that. Creating, and, and I grew up um, uh, in a mainline Protestant church, and so one of the things we would do is we would change the name of God to the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier to sort of appease this mess. But what Jensen pointly corrects out here is that Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier neither name these relationships. They're adjectives, and they also are something that any other God might claim to do. I've created, I've redeemed, and I've sanctified. But with the language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have this particular way of claiming the Christian story. And so what we find when we consider the revelation of Jesus Christ in its fullness is that we are, we are caught in the language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But not only that, we are gifted that language as well. If Christianity is just the invention of humanity, it would make sense that we could just throw off and change the language. But if Christianity is something revealed to us in a particular relationship that transcends gender but is revealed in the terms of Father, Son, and Spirit, then perhaps it would be wise to us to listen to that revelation, to cherish it, to take it into our hearts and communities, and to be able to proclaim together that we believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. Let us pray. God, you have gifted us in your revelation language that we can use and cherish understand who you are. As with all language, it doesn't come with its own challenges and its struggles and its bump-ups against our reality. And yet, through your wisdom, your manifold wisdom as we sang today, this language you use for to be revealed to humanity. And not only that, to call you Father is to know your Son, to know the one whom you sent to earth to live amongst us and to reveal yourself to us most clearly. And that through his lips we would find ourselves and through his prayers for us and through being adopted through his blood that we would find that we have been brought into the household of our heavenly father. Be near to us now. ask all of this in your holy name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.